guess how you going to tell us what Heron died of? It's running now. Well, some say he committed suicide, but we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, well, actually, maybe not tonight. Gangrene in his crotch. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> You're laughing. Okay. So, let us begin. The topic for tonight is, what was the attitude of the Jews, most specifically the Pharisees, towards Herod the Great? That we know from last week's presentation that the beginning of his rule was a very bloody one. Uh, he eliminated the Hasmonean rivals, and then he killed off much of his family, some of whom were Hasmonean by blood. Uh, but th- those are individual people uh, of you know, VIP status. The question is, what did the average Jew think of Herod? And did they accept his rule? Uh, was he good for the Jews or was he bad for the Jews? That's the basic idea here. So Christian scholars and some Jewish scholars made major errors in their assessment of the attitude of Jews towards Herod. There are several false premises that they built their, their, uh, their viewpoint on. Firstly, they thought that Pharisaism was essentially a pure religious movement, while Sadduceanism was fundamentally political. We've seen this in the past. This notion that the, the proto-rabbis were just interested in Torah and, and, and religion, whereas the, the, the Kohanim the, were, were political and zealot and you know, nationalistically oriented. That's not really true. The Pharisees were just as interested in politics as the next guy. It's just that they weren't in power all that often. Okay, second point that is a false premise is that the Pharisees were only a professional uh, guild of scribes and sages who wanted to control the nation religiously with or without the consent of the people. That's not true. We're going to see that the Pharisees were the dominant element within the people. Um, the majority of the Jewish public in Judea in the latter half of the, of, the, of the first century BCE were either self-identified Pharisees or at least uh, Amharats who favored that, that school of thought in matters of religion. Okay, and the third point that, everyone, that, that many of the scholars made a mistake on was to assume that Phar- the Pharisaic branch of Judaism was monolithic, which over the last three years of, of studying here, in the, these courses we've learned that's not true. There was a left wing and there was a right wing, and we can identify exactly what branch of, of uh, Pharisaic Judaism any particular sage uh, was in, based upon his political viewpoints and his religious viewpoints. Could, so, they, could they say that the point of view... The Christian Church, the Pharisees vis-a-vis Jesus, yeah. lent itself to that. Yes, point. so Gedalia alone, in his uh, major work on, on the period, says that all the Christian scholars of the 19th century, who were, many of whom were Protestant theologians as well, were influenced by the, the New Testament's uh, branding of the Pharisees as, as hypocrites, hypocrisy, as ba- basically being evil and trying to eliminate Jesus. And so they were looking to, to say bad things about this group across the board. Um, and so there's a bias built in. Except the problem is that a lot of Jewish scholars from the 19th century and early 20th century did the same thing. They made the same mistakes. So based upon yeah, these... Their fo- motivation was different than the Christian uh, take on the term Pharisees. That's true. This was reformed, looking at Pharisees as, as archaic, as uh, fossilized in their thinking, whereas the... Uh, the Jews were trying the to show... Yeah. They looked at them as, uh, as murderers, you know. Yeah, yeah. Killers. So, with these incorrect premises, we have incorrect conclusions. And that is to say that the Pharisees threw off the yoke of the Jewish kingdom and were indifferent to the political needs of the people, that they fought the last of the Hasmoneans and welcomed the arrival of the Romans and the Herodians so long as the Romans and the Herodians would allow them to lead the people in matters of Torah. That's what a lot of the scholars assumed, that politics be damned, who cares about independence, as long as you give me the chance to to run halachic matters, I'm happy. And that's the way they, they, they... 
portrayed the Prushim, when in fact only a very fringe minority of the Prushim ever would have held that opinion. Who, who welcomed, wasn't it the Maccabees who welcomed Rome? Well, we're going to address the issue of. We're going to address the issue of who welcomed Roman intervention to begin with, and why did they do so? Why did they do so? so but but the the way um, that Gedalia alone uh, uh, phrased this incorrect uh, approach to the, to the to the subject was like this: the basic factor in the relationship between the Pharisees to the Hasmoneans and to the Romans was their opposition to the politicization of the nation, emanating from their desire to conserve the religious spiritual character of the life of the community. Basically, like an Aturi Karta Gudis Yisrael kind of viewpoint. He says that's what all the scholars thought, and all the scholars are wrong. Okay, why is this wrong, and how can we prove that it's wrong? We have to go to the halacha. What is the halacha? The halacha is not the Torah. The Torah is an old, old book, Pentateuch, five books of Moses, Hamishachum, Sher Torah, that we regard as sacred. But it's not how we live our lives. We live our lives according to the halacha. And the halacha is crafted by the sages to satisfy real needs of society. Real needs of society. Sometimes, with uh, an element of suppressing the Torah. Give me Talmudic terminology uh, that fits this, this idea of suppressing the Torah within the halacha for the sake of society. Shevi al-tase, exactly. Sit back and do nothing. Rather than actively uh, uh, do something which is detrimental, do nothing and your violation will have been passive instead of active. Or, mipnei tikkun olam, certain things are enacted for the sake of the betterment of the world. Whether it's because of Aguna issues or because of Takanata uh, Shavim, those they be, should be able to, to repent from stealing. Uh, we have many things that are Mipnei Tikkun Olam, that the law as it stood on its own was insufficient, and the rabbis have to mend it so, in some way in order to make society function. So you could argue that Eruv is Mipnei Tikkun, not Olam, but uh, for, the, for the ease of, of a religious observance. Other, other things, for example, It's a time to act for the Lord. We will we'll, we'll profane the Torah. We'll violate the Torah in some fashion for the greater good. Okay. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. You just couldn't do it. You couldn't live that way. Correct, correct. So there, there, there are many ways that the rabbinic halacha suppresses Torah as needed because the the doctors of the halacha, the Pharisaic sages, did care about the, the fate of the nation politically and otherwise. They were not um, ivory tower pietists who just uh, wanted to keep the, uh, the pristine law and nothing else. They understood the nature of the world and the political struggles of the people. Also, Hillel's principle, exactly. If 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 uh, if the Pharisees were just pietists who wanted to keep Torah, they'd say you you cannot collect the debt after the shemitah. Simple as that. You can't do it. Hillel's Prosbul says you can. We have we live in the real world. Okay. So also, and aside from from the, the halachic issues, there is the fact that we know many of the Pharisaic leaders were involved in uh, government affairs and or political revolution, especially after the destruction of the temple. So. You can't say that they were just pietists who were aloof. They were not. Furthermore, the Pharisees were the majority of the nation. They were not a sect or a small subgroup. Therefore, don't think that um, they were uh, 
a fringe element in society that has um, an opinion that is hostile to nationalism, they are the nation. Don't, they're one and the same. The Sadducees are the, are, are the fringe subgroup of elite priests who want to protect their prerogatives in the temple and cultivate relationships with the, higher, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the Roman authorities. They are the corrupt ones at the top. But the Pharisees represent the Amcha, the, the average man. Okay. Now, the Pharisees did not oppose the Hasmoneans for being uh, non-Davidic thieves of the monarchy. This idea that only a, a descendant of King David could be a king... That's not true. We've looked at this in the past, and we concluded that it was possible for you to be a legitimate monarch, not a descendant of David, um, so long as this was not olamit, forever. If it was a temporary matter, you could hold p- a political authority over the, pe- over the people as a so-called king, uh, despite uh, a- other ancestry, so long as you were Jewish. If you weren't Jewish, that's against the Torah. The Torah says you have to be, you can't be a goy and be the king. from among your brethren, which we'll get to that. That affects Herod. Okay, but why? So why did that? Your brethren are treating you better, the goyim. Well, if the goyim are going to treat you better than than your own brethren, that's going to be the issue of why they got rid of Hyrcanus and Aristobulus because they were tyrants. Even though they were Jewish, they were tyrants, and who wants a tyrant? That's going to be a, a, a real reason to overthrow them. But the, the reason why the, the, the Pharisees began to oppose Alexander Yanai was because he usurped the prerogatives of the representative Sanhedrin and changed uh, governance from a diarchy to a monarchy, an absolutist rule. Okay, so... Is it open? question? No? Uh-oh. It's a weekday, it's okay. Oh, that's right, that's what the rabbi said yesterday. Do you have the chain on? Okay. All right. The congregation may be seated. So, I've never said that here before. So that's the ladies auxiliary the link. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the, the, the Pharisees opposed Yanai because he took away the prerogatives of the Sanhedrin. What is the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin is, a, is a, a court of 71 elders who are supposed to be learned in Torah and issue rulings on matters of the halakha or, ma- or, ma- or case law. But in terms of governing the country throughout the Second Temple period, the, the, the system, the old regime, was that the Kohen Gadol was the first among equals, basically. He was a powerful figure, but the, so, the president of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was 71 guys who were not elected, but at least uh, in some way represented the general public. Instead of it being one man's uh, rule uh, with an iron fist, many more people were involved in governance. And they were regarded as the representative council of, of Am Yisrael. When Yanai takes away a lot of their authority and you, you know, basically controls all matters of governance in his own hands, that's a reason for the Pharisees to say, this is not, this is not good, we're going to oppose your rule. Okay. Uh, the people, um, the scholars claim that the Sadducees supported Aristobulus in the Civil War and the Pharisees supported Hyrcanus. And the reason why they make this, this claim is because Aristobulus was a, was a starker, he was a strong man. And the Sadducees favored a, a strong monarchy. 
Whereas the Pharisees supposedly didn't like the monarchy. They wanted weak governance, weak central governance, you know, and uh, they knew that Hyrcanus was a, was a pushover, being pulled, the strings were being pulled by Antipater, and so they favored a weakling. That's what the scholars claimed. But the problem is there's absolutely no evidence for this. Even though big, big names in the, in the Wissenschaft des Judentum and the scientific study of Judaism have made this assertion, there's really no evidence for it. And we can prove it, that, that it really wasn't true. Because what happened, if you remember, in the 50s, before the Common Era, when they sent Aristobulus packing to Rome as a prisoner, as a VIP prisoner of war, and he used to escape and break out, what would he do? He'd come back and fight. And when he couldn't do it, well, who would do it? His son would do it. So again and again, these guys were breaking out of jail from the Supermax facility, or the not-so-Supermax facility in, in Rome, coming back to Judea to fight another day against Pompey, against Hyrcanus, to, to regain the throne. Well, those wars were serious wars. If they had no popular support, because they were uh, on the side of the Sadducees and the, the, the vast bulk of the people are Pharisees, how could they have ever hoped to um, put together an army, to muster an army? They wouldn't be able to. So this tends to disprove the idea that the Sadducees favored Aristobulus and the Pharisees favored Hyrcanus. It, it, it was mixed. Anybody could favor anyone. Remember, these guys were in it for themselves. They were not ideologues. They were just politicians who wanted power for the sake of having power. You can't say one was a doctrinal conservative or a liberal. They were just in it for themselves. And so the average person, regardless of their sectarian affiliation, was free to pick whoever they want. It was an open primary. Okay? Um, well, I guess, you know, it was a different structure there. You didn't have a media right. that was able to propagandize a particular party line. Yeah. You didn't have newspapers, you didn't have television, you didn't have anything. So the only way they did fight was basically on based on grudges. Grudges, yeah. On, uh, personality cults and things like that. The personality cult was the main thing. The main thing was the personality cult. So but Didn't you have a tribal mentality also? Yes. So if we belong to this tribe. We would this is our guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you needed a leader to motivate them. Uh, which sometimes was lacking. Yeah. Okay. So when the Pharisees sent a delegation to Pompey, rejecting both Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, they were not rejecting Jewish nationalism. So this is an interesting uh, take on, on the three delegations that were sent in the year 63. You know, one was from Aristobulus, he sends a bribe of 500 talents of gold. Another one is from Hyrcanus, he sends a bribe too. Those are personalities, those are characters. You either like them or you don't like them. But the third group said, we don't want either of these guys. We want... No Hasmonean monarch. We want simply governance by the people. By the people. Democracy. democracy. Except that democracy wasn't going to happen. So you could interpret this request as saying, we want direct Roman rule because we don't care about Jewish independence and just waltz on in and take us over. That's how, how many scholars for, uh, for a long time interpreted uh, that delegation, that they had no regard for Jewish nationalism, only for religious affairs, and as long as the Romans would be tolerant of Judaism, which basically they were for the longest time, all would be okay. The temple cult would continue to function, Torah study would, would, would be ongoing in, in the schools, and, and all we care about is religion, so that's good. But that's not really what was motivating them. Rather, they wanted the restoration of the old regime, which was Sanhedrin and a high priest ruling in tandem without some uh, tyrannical Hasmonean uh, great-grandson of, of Matityahu causing trouble and trying to usurp all power. 
that's their real concern. But they understood, as political realists, that you're not going to have Rome just walk away. Rome is going to take over. There is no option for independence now, and independence under uh, sort of a democratic rule of the Sanhedrin. At best, you could hope for direct Roman rule with, with local autonomy run by the Sanhedrin. That's the best you could hope for. What, in fact, happens... Uh, they pick a Hyrcanus, and Hyrcanus is a weakling. And Antipater pulls the strings, and you end up, you end up with Herod. Okay. So, yeah, you did have the Sanhedrin, because yes, Herod, uh, Herod appeared before the Sanhedrin. Correct. So the Sanhedrin still functions as a legislative body, as a judicial body, and is not going to go away until, until Herod kills them. Right, so that's what we're going to get to now. Because uh, this is all a build-up into what was the Jewish approach towards governance, and how did Herod fit into that mold, or not fit into it, and that explains why they would have disliked him. Okay. Um, the proof that uh, the Pharisees cared about the, the political fate of the nation is seen in another point. The Dead Sea sect, they ran away to the wilderness. Why? Well, one reason that I, that I came across was they didn't like what was going on in the base of Mekdash. Correct. So they so they separated themselves with the aim of one day going over and taking it over again. Correct. But that one day is like a messianic time. It wasn't, they, they, they were, there were no um, short-term or intermediate-term plans to, uh, to reconquer the temple. They went away because the temple was impure, and they're going to divorce themselves from the political fate of Judea. They'll just live as loners in the desert. They were eccentrics too, yes. A lot of them, they, they didn't uh, procreate for the most part. I mean, uh, they were weird. Let's, let's face it, they were weird. Okay? The Pharisees didn't do that. Despite do doctrinal differences on matters of, of revelation and the authority of the oral law and the development of the halakha, despite all those differences they had with the Sadducees, they sat together on the Sanhedrin. Why would they do that? After all, these are apicorsum heretics. How could you sit on the on the on the on the, 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 the New York Board of Rabbis with Reform and Conservative Rabbis? They would say today. Uh, the answer is because on political matters, on the fate of Ju of the Judean nation, the Pharisees cared. They weren't going to simply say, "We'll we'll leave it in the hands of the other guy." No, they participated fully. They participated fully despite religious differences with the other with other sectarian groups. It's like an ancient version of the president's conference. There you go. Okay, so people who disagree with each other on a lot of issues, but are able to get together for the, the purpose of Am Yisrael. Okay. Um, Herod's first run-in with the Pharisees was his clash over executing Hezekiah and his followers in the Galilee, which we spoke about last week, where Herod was a governor in the Galilee and uh, killed off a, a local zealot leader and his followers. He did not uh, pursue the prosecution of these so-called criminals in a, uh, under a, official channels of a Sanhedrin, Ketano, or Gedola, he simply killed them, uh, with him and his goons. So that's why he was brought to court. And we said last time, we read the Gemara and Yoma, about how Shmaya or Shammai, was the only elder of the Sanhedrin who was willing to stand up to Herod and uh, you know, say, you're, you're guilty, you, you, know, you should pay the price. And Herod's response was, uh, let's, let, you know, let, let's turn to your colleagues and see what they say. And what did they do? They twiddled their thumbs and looked away. And he was able to escape. And uh, Shammai said to them, you're all going to pay the price for this, for this uh, dereliction of duty. And what happened to all of them? They died. Okay, yeah. What was from what I remember reading, according to Josephus, he was a brigand. He wasn't a zealot. That, uh, right. So uh, it, it, it could be 
that he was just a, 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 a regular criminal. It could be he was a criminal with nationalist motives. For the last hundred years of, of the Judean state's existence, it's oftentimes difficult to determine whether someone committed uh, the crime of theft and brigandry just for the fun of it, to make, you know, to, as a parnasa, or for the sake of some greater cause. Like Bisman Hazer, you know, the, the Havdil, the Palestinian terrorist, you know, who's just doing it for, for, for criminal reasons and who's doing it for nationalist motives. You know, sometimes you don't know. Okay. Um, so, the scholars were, were incorrect in understanding um, that, the, well, they believed that the Pharisees did not originally oppose Herod. And they offered several proof texts or stories um, to base their opinion. One is that Shmaya and Aftalion, or some say it was Hill and Shammai, counseled the leadership of Jerusalem in the year 37 not to oppose Herod's army, the Roman army, as they were going to defeat Antigonus. Now that's a big deal. You hear you have a Jerusalem under siege, big rabbis telling the, uh, the gatekeepers, open up the gates to the enemy, let them in. So many scholars assumed that was because Shammai and Hillel, or Shammai and Avtalion, Pharisaic leaders, supported Herodian rule. And, uh, it would be a lot easier. We wouldn't be as many deaths. Okay, so let, let's try to explain this. So the, the scholars said the, the rabbis, or the proto-rabbis, were against Antigonus because he was a Hasmonean and he was corrupt, he was bad, and they don't like the Hashmonaim, whereas the, the proto-rabbis were in favor of Herod, so they said, open the gates, let him on in. Okay, that's one point. The second point they, they tried to uh, prove that the rabbis preferred Herod is that during the, the Herodian period, Torah scholarship seemed to have increased, and the number of halachic statements increases dramatically. Anyone who studied the Talmud knows this to be true. How many halachic statements are cited in the names of figures who lived in the, the before Common Era? There, no, very few. Very few. But what, what, when do we have halachic statements cited by, uh, uh, you know, in people's names? So Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tafan, Rabbi Oshur, Rabbi Lezer, that's all post-destruction of the Temple. Pre-year pre 70, there are very few scholars by name who make halachic statements. And even in the, year, the pre-70 era, it's mostly from 0 to 70. It's not the pre, the, the, before the common era. So the, you know that gap also in Jewish history, after 12, after Rashi, after yeah. all the way up to the 1700s, where is the big names? How so you're right. There, there are peaks and valleys. There are peaks and valleys. And big valleys. Yeah. So, so they, they try to look to this, the, the expansion of halachic statements in the Herodian era to prove that Torah was on the rise. It must be the rabbi's favorite Herod. That's the second point. Now let's go to a third point. Later on, after the destruction, they felt that they had to write things down. So we're going we're gonna to use that as, as a possible explanation. No, but between yeah. 0 and 70, this is Herodian period. You're saying there was a so dearth. For, so, so, there was no, a no. From, from 37... Till four BCE, when Herod was was in charge, we see a, 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 an increase in the number of named sta- halachic statements. There was almost nothing before that. There's a little bit in his time, even more afterwards. It's 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 on the rise. It's on the rise. Okay, and the schools of Hillel and Shammai are big at that time. Herod probably didn't care what the rabbi was saying. Well, maybe, maybe. Can you also yeah. indicate that there was not that much halacha around until thirty-seven? Okay, okay, that, that's going to be the answer. But let's let's do, do the other points. So, another point is Shmaya ve'Avtalion Omer 
פרק יובוס, שמיה ואבתי קיבלו אומר, אהב את המלאכה ושנא את הרבנות, ואל תתוודה לרשות. So, love, work, hate lordliness, not hate the rabbinate, but the rabbinate is a good thing, it gives me parnasa. And, and, and lastly, don't get too close to the government. So some interpreted this statement by Shmaya Talion to mean that they didn't want to be involved in political matters, they were simply involved in Torah study, and, they, and that's proof uh, of the Pharisees uh, being disinclined to engage the political arena. That it's fine, Herod can be in charge, he's the boss, we're not going to fight with him, we're just going to do our own thing in terms of Torah study. But that has been a philosophy for millennium. Among certain sectors of the community. Not everyone, but certain sectors of the community. Okay, now the last story that is cited by some of the scholars to prove that the rabbis were uh, not against Herod, they were against the Hasmonians and favored Herod, is a story we've cited once before. Um, again, with Shmaya Naftalion. Sigmar and Yoma, uh, 71b. There was an incident involving a high priest who left the temple, and we're talking about uh, you know at, at the end of the day on Yom Kippur when the, when the high priest has finished his service and he's very happy that he came out alive. It says Yom Tov Haya Oselo Havav. He would make a holiday, a party for his his friends, you know, like a VIP party. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, the question is when that happened. Was it after Tzesa uh, Kochavim or not? It's a bit machlokis. But, but he, he had a party. Everyone was following the high priest as a mark of respect. Big throng of people following him. When they saw that these two rabbis, were also walking along the way, they, they abandoned uh, the high priest and went to, to the rabbis. It's like you see one a, a B-list celebrity and you follow him, and all of a sudden you see an A-list celebrity, and everybody runs to the A-list celebrity. Okay, what ha- so what does the B-listers uh, think to himself? I hate that guy. You know, uh, jealousy comes in. Now atu the coin gadol. Shmaya Talion, as a as a sign of respect, then escorted the high priest, and as they were parting ways, there was a, a nasty interchange. Amar Lahen, he the high priest said to them, Yatun bnei Amamin Lishlam, may the sons of the Gentiles go in peace. Now the Shmaya Talion, they were complicit. Talion were regarded as, if not converts, then the, the descendants of converts. So here the high priest is saying to, you know, like a Jew who's got a Shegit's last name because his father was a, was, was a Ger, uh, may the Shegit's go in peace. That's a terrible thing to say. Terrible thing, a, a scandalous thing to say to two big rabbis that call them Bnei Amamin. Not nice. You're embarrassing the people. Right or wrong, you have to do that. Well, so the, so the Kohen did a very bad thing. Now, Amru lay, so they responded... So they said to, uh, uh, to him, May the Shegitzes who follow in the footsteps of Aaron do the deeds of Aaron go in peace, and may the descendant of Aaron who doesn't do the deeds of Aaron not go in peace. 
In other words, you could make, you could say all you want about our ancestry and about your ancestry. The point is, we behave like a mensch and you behave like a, a scoundrel. So peace be upon us, and you go to hell. That's that's what, what happened. What does this story have to do with anything we're talking about here? So many of the of the historians believed that this story really happened, and that the Kohen Gadol in question was Antigonus, who remember was the king high priest from forty to thirty seven. He was the one who came in with the Parthians when they ousted the Romans, and he is ousted himself by Herod, and then is executed at Antioch uh, by Mark Anthony. Um, so, if that's the case, if the rabbis hated Antigonus, and the rabbis welcomed in Herod then you, you would be free to say that the rabbis in general were opposed to, to Jewish nationalism and favored a, a, a Roman takeover under the vassal King Herod. That's how they wanted to interpret this story. But let's now reinterpret all these pieces of information. Actually, the war episode about opening up the gates proves the opposite. Not that the rabbis and the Pharisees favored Herod, but rather that they favored Jewish national rule over themselves, independence. Because for three years, Antigonus held out against Herod's army, courtesy of popular Jewish support. And since the Pharisees were the majority of the people, it must mean he had their support. You don't fight the Romans and Herod for three years unless you're putting up a good fight. Otherwise, you go down very quickly. So it must be that the average man favored continued independent rule and did not want Herod to win. It did not want the Romans to take over. But when all was lost, the, uh, the moderate Pharisees, as representative by Shmaya Naftalion, who have a realistic understanding of the political situation, they advocated a prudent course of action of opening the city's gates so that less people die. What happens if you fight to the last man? The last man dies. Everybody's dead. What happens if you surrender as things are looking bleak? Maybe some people survive. So it's, a, it's the prudent thing to do, and the rabbis are using their seichel, open up the gates. That explains the first incident. The case in point would be the question of uh, Josephus at Joppa. Correct. He believed that they had no chance to win, so he changed teams. So you could argue that he's not a Benedict Arnold, he's just a, you know, a reasonably savvy operator. Okay, now... Some did fight to the, politi- to the bitter end, which, which in fact proves that the Pharisees were not monolithic. There were those who were uh, Fabrenta Zionists. They were going to go down fighting the blaze of glory to the last man in the temple courtyard itself, on, in the Azara. And there were others who will give up when they see the handwriting on the wall. They understand that they're the, the, you know, not going to win, you might as well not fight anymore. Now, what about the increase in halakhic statements and the supposed increase in learning? So, actually... This was not because the rabbis favored Herod, or that, the, that Herod liked the rabbis. Far from it. Actually, it was an evil consequence of Herod's hatred for the rabbis. Up until the Herodian time, how were halachic matters decided? What was the system? The majority of rule where? In the Sanhedrin. You take a vote, 36 to 35, and, the, and then the majority wins. And so most decisions in matters of the Jewish law, ritual law, or criminal law, ceremonial law, you didn't need to have it recorded in the name of Rabbi so-and-so, or sage so-and-so. They didn't have rabbis back then, the title didn't exist yet. But um, you didn't need to record it in anyone's name because it was a consensus decision of the high court. So it was an anonymous halakha, 
it's simply a rule that exists on the books. There are no books. It's, it's all oral. Um, but when you destroy the Sanhedrin, and you can't take a vote all the time, so the number of disagreements will increase in Israel because you don't come to a definitive conclusion. Machloket festers. It continues. It, it becomes a decades ongoing. Every man to himself does what he thinks is right. And these differences of opinion are never settled. Uh, later on, they'll be settled in, in the academy at Yavne or in the Mishnaic corpus. You'll have a, an opinion that, that is marginalized and one that is the dominant one. But because of the demise of the Sanhedrin as a functioning body, so you don't have uh, uh, absolute rule, you have different opinions. And uh, different opinions are recorded in the name of a specific sage. So the, the culture of anonymity of the past is gone, and now you have things in the name of Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai, Hillel, Shammai, Baba Ben Buta, Zechariah Ben Avkulis, uh, Nachum Hamadi, uh, uh, all, the, all the, the names that you'll find in the Mishnah, where you don't have the word Rabbi, Rabbi in front of the name, what does that indicate? That they lived before the destruction of the Temple. Because the title Rabbi only is a post-Temple title. So anybody who doesn't have the title, you go back to Perkeavos or, or, or other tractates of the Mishnah, these are temple-era sages who are saying halachot, that's their personal opinion, not a rule that was handed down from a, a ruling of the Sanhedrin. So it was a, a bad thing that you have the increase in, in halachic statements. Okay. Now the evidence shows that the rabbis opposed Herod from the beginning. He killed 45 members of the Sanhedrin immediately upon his ascension to power. And the Talmud says he killed all the rabbis. Katul the chulad rabbanon. That's rabbinic. Uh, uh, that's Talmudic exaggeration, hyperbole. But it's not that much of an exaggeration. He really did kill a lot of members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Six thousand Pharisees refused to take the oath of allegiance to Herod's government. What happened to them? Uh, most of them didn't make it out alive. Uh, but the fact that they refused there to take there was no public revolt against. Herod. Okay. Okay, so the fact that there was no public revolt, no major exploit against Herod's rule, so the historians took that as a proof that the rabbis didn't oppose Herod. If they, were, if they really opposed Herod, then there would have been some episode recorded in history of an assassination attempt, a revolt, a massive uprising, but there's no such, such a, a event that is recorded. Does that really prove anything? No, because... Sometimes you don't have opportunity. But it could be suppressed also. It could be suppressed. You, you might have motive, but either no opportunity, or even if you had opportunity in the attempt, the record might delete when that incident from history. This conclusion that the rabbis, that they did not oppose Herod. The 19th century. 19th century. There is no Jewish history before the 19th century. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, yeah. is that that's based on error. Yeah. They didn't have no, of course not. Of course not. Okay. Now, the, um, the Jews tear down the golden eagle that was placed on the temple gates at the end of Herod's reign, which uh, shows you how unpopular some of Herod's uh, moves were, especially vis-a-vis Jerusalem and the holy places, uh, because the golden eagle was a side of Rome. Uh, he did that to, fa- to curry favor with his, uh, uh, his handlers uh, back on the, uh, the Italian peninsula. So, what happened to the people who tore down the Golden Eagle? They got killed. Uh, had they get killed, they were burned to death. 
they did this in the year four before the common era as Herod was dying because a lot of times, and this is a common theme throughout history, when a, when a horrible ruler, evil man who's been around for decades is in his death throes, people jump the gun and they, they, they make aggressive moves to, to topple any, any remembrance, any zecher to this bad man. But before he's had his last breath, while he's still on life support, and can a, can a tyrant cause damage when he's on life support? Absolutely. He can issue uh, instructions to, to kill people, to offer executions, even to the last breath. Okay, to the last breath. But he also gave an order to kill the people who were involved with the eagle yeah. after he died. Right, yeah. Yeah. And they had to, they had to change the order, no? The, the mandate, the, his mandate. So after he, was, after he was dead, the executors of his estate... Uh, did not always follow his instructions. Now, the Jews complained about Herod's heir, Archelaus, who was his son from the third wife, not uh, from the fourth wife, not from Mari- Mariamne, not the Hasmonean princess. And after ten years of pathetic rule, Archelaus was banished. The fact that they opposed his son, and his son was weak, uh, is a further indicator that they opposed him too, but they couldn't accomplish anything because he was too strong. All right. Now, why did the Pharisees oppose Herod? This is, this is uh, what we have to examine. What were the real objections? Number one, he was not of Jewish descent. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Okay, Herod had a father who was an Idumean convert, or the son of, a, uh, the son of an Idumean convert. He had a Nabataean mother, who whether she converted to Judaism or not, we'll never know. Uh, but it's immaterial. The point is, racially, ethnically, he was not a Jew. Even if religiously, he was nominally a Jew. And so that's not good enough. Later on, two generations later, his grandson Agrippa I will have the same problem. Is he a Jew for, for monarchical purposes? And we'll have the famous Gemara, which says uh, that the Jews flattered him and said, Achinuata, Achinuata, you're our brother, you're our brother, don't worry, don't cry, Herod, Herod, Agrippa, we love you. Okay, when we t- discuss Agrippa, we'll get to that passage in the Talmud, what, what it's really saying. But the point is, okay, he... They really did love him. He was, a, he was a good king for three years. He was a good king from 41 to 44. Okay, but at least he had a Jewish mother and was totally Jewish on one side. Herod was entirely a, a goy uh, racially, so they didn't like him for that reason. Number two, as I said before, he abolished or suppressed the Sanhedrin and enacted laws which were contrary to the halacha. So that's going to... Uh, uh, raise the ire of, uh, of, of the traditionalists and those who feel that the halakha should be the law of the land. Next point. He rotated incompetent high priests, a job which should be an appointment for life, like the Supreme Court of the U.S., okay? You're supposed to have the job of Kohen Gadol for life. You can be disqualified by having a mum, like when Hyrcanus had his ears bit off for, from last week. And that was pretty gross that the, the nephew bit off his ear. But assuming you're still able-bodied and you don't have a mum, uh, you have the job until the day you die. What did Herod do? He would appoint and depose, appoint and depose for political reasons. What, were, what, what was his strategy? So he knew that if he has a Hasmonean high priest, that Hasmonean high priest will want to be the king also, like his granddaddies were. So what do you do? You appoint the high priest from the Chutzlaretz, from Babylonia or from Egypt, and those guys are entirely beholden to you, have no uh, independent base of power, and if, they don't, if you don't like what they're doing, uh, if Harry doesn't like what they're doing, uh, goodbye, you're fired. 
That's what he would do, repeatedly, repeatedly. So what's so terrible about this? Aside from the fact that it makes a mockery out of the office, and if you're a traditionalist, you don't want to see that happen, and you don't want to have a, a buffoon holding the office who, who's illiterate, like, the, like in the Mishnah and Yoma, it says that the, if the Kohen Gadol didn't know how to give a, a sermon on the night of Yom Kippur, they would read the Chumash for him, and they would read the Tanakh for him. And the Gemara asks, how could it be that he didn't know how to give a sermon, he didn't know how to read himself? And the answer is, he was illiterate. How could it, you could hire an illiterate Kohen Gadol? The answer is, he was a political appointee. Uh, these things happened, but it's an embarrassment for Judaism. Okay, but also there's a, um, a governance issue here. The Kohen Gadol was supposed to be in a, a dual leadership with the Sanhedrin to run the affairs of state. Herod, as a, a, a tyrant with an, an iron fist king, he abolishes or suppresses the Sanhedrin and makes mincemeat out of the Kohen Gadol. So both elements of the leadership have been reduced. And who is elevated instead? Him, personally. So that's another complaint. All right, next point. He put the stamp of Greek culture on Eretz Yisrael by building a theater, a stadium, a hippodrome, and other, other uh, cultural institutions that are foreign to Judaism but are part of Hellenic culture. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Card in favor of Rome? Or? Okay, so... Yeshomrim, there are those who will say that he actually had a cultural interest in uh, the ways of the Hellenes, as did Aristobulus Philhellene, the son of John Hyrcanus, as did Alchemus and Menelaus and Jason. I mean, yeah, you had Jews who liked Hellenic culture, and so maybe Herod was like that. But, more reasonably, what he was trying to do was um, raise the status of the alien heathen population of Eretz Yisrael at the expense of the indigenous Jews. Remember, Eretz Yisrael is a Jewish country, or at least in theory. It's supposed to be a Jewish country. But demographically, there's a problem. Because ever since the Macedonian conquest, who has been moving in? Goyim. What kind of Goyim? Well, Greeks, others, you know, slave population who were beholden to the Greeks... Uh, Phoenicians, I mean, there are elements, there are areas of Eretz Israel where Jews are not the demographic majority, along the coast, in the Galilee, etc., etc. So, what Herod is doing is satisfying the cultural needs of those populations, increasing that population in terms of raw numbers, at the expense of the demographic power and supremacy of Jews. Why do this? Because he relies upon the Goyim for his base of political support, since he knows that the Jews hate his guts. The Jews see him as a foreigner, as a stranger, as someone who really shouldn't be the king, and is uh, you know, forcibly uh, controlling their lives, their political destiny. So he knows they hate him. And if he wants to be liked by anyone, who's it going to be? The Gentile population. What do you do? You give them bread and circus. You give them whatever they want. Stadium, theater, etc. And you don't build yeshivas for the study of Torah, and you don't make the Jews happy. What about the Mesa? Okay, so you make them happy in that one way. And, it's, and that's a very important way in the capital. Keep, make sure that, that the capital city uh, is employing a lot of people who rely upon the king for their daily bread. That's the kahuna. So, so the kahuna is happy because they have a big palace for themselves, a big temple for their god. And the average worker is happy because he gets his salary. Of course, what happens when the construction phase is over? What happens to those workers? Uh, they, they, they go hungry? The answer is keep building Keep it always going. Public works. Always more public works. This way you don't have to fire the employees 
and they don't go on a bread line and uh, and get uh, um, angry and and politically conscious. Okay, so there are those who would regard Herod not so much as uh, although he was king of Judea, not as the king of the Jews, but as king of the Gentiles. But this is uh, uh, incorrect understanding. It's not that he actually loved the Gentiles more than the Jews. He was a despot who was entirely without ties of race, spirit, or national aspirations to the peoples over whom he ruled. He didn't really love any one group over another group, didn't hate any one group. He loved himself, but was smart enough to realize who's likely to, to enjoy his rule and to, to uh, favor it and want it to continue, and who's going to hate him and want to see his rule come to an end. So he feared the Jews, so he strengthened the other elements to protect himself. Now, the Pharisees were also upset with Herod for another reason. And this we've entirely overlooked until now because of certain assumptions that we've made. We've assumed that Herod um, is basically like a, a Roman, now, he's an Idumean by ancestry, and he's a Jew by religion, nominally, but politically, what is he, where is he? He's, uh, he's kissing up to the Romans, and he might as well be a Roman. He goes to Rome, sits with, 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 with Octavian, with, with Antony, and then he's loyal to Octavian primarily. Uh, his whole career is making the Romans think that he's a wonderful uh, vassal ruler, and he ingratiates himself with Rome. But... He's a Jew. Whether, even if not by, by, by nationality, by uh, birth, in terms of the, the environment of his birth, and by the culture in which he, he lives and marries, he's a Jew. And the Jews of Eretz Yisrael hoped against hope that maybe he would want to be a Jewish ruler. Obviously not along the exact same lines as his Hasmonean rivals, but maybe he'll be a Jewish ruler. Is it such a far-fetched idea? No. After all, his grandson identifies himself as a Jewish ruler, was a pious, devout observer of the mitzvot, and, and marked his own course against Roman interests for the country of Judea. So the Pharisees might have thought, maybe, just maybe, Herod will divert from pure, blind allegiance to Rome and try to cultivate some uh, independence for the Jewish nation. It's not so far-fetched, but it never happened. It never, ever happened. He always retained his allegiance to the Romans, never developed his own foreign policy. Whatever his handlers wanted, that's what he did. So in some ways, as powerful as he was, and as as strong as he was and able to, to, to kill any Jew he wanted, he was also weak. And that he never was fully his own man. He was beholden to the Roman uh, uh, authorities, basically to, to Augustus, to Octavian, uh, for most of the last three decades of his, of his life. Okay. Um, Why would that make him weak? He's just lying with the big shots. Yeah, but sometimes vassal uh, uh, kings will seize an opportunity to break free of their overlords and be truly independent. It made no sense for him. So he, obviously, he never thought it made sense, so he never tried it. But others did, historically. And you could argue that it showed a lack of courage on his part to take a chance. But the, that could be from the Pharisaic point of view. 
you know, we wanted him to be a Jewish king, but he didn't have the guts to do it. Yeah. And in the meantime, Herod's saying, hey, look, I got a job. I'm the king. And that's and it. I got, uh, these are my employers, and I'm very happy. I'm right, well, that was, that was his attitude. That was his attitude. No, but the, the fact... And yet, we go to Israel today, he's, his stuff is all still around. Okay, right. so now, the fact that, that the, the, the Jews, and the Pharisees in particular thought that it might have been possible for someone of Idumean extraction like Herod, like the Herodian family to break free of Rome, of, of Rome's clutches and carve out an independent Jewish, quote unquote uh, uh, political destiny, is seen in the fact that there was one assassination attempt against Herod it never got off the ground, obviously it was, it was a failure, um, and who did the Pharisees try to co-opt into this assassination conspiracy? Herod's brother, Pereris now, why would they turn to Herod's brother, of all people, to try to eliminate Herod? Answer, they thought that the brother might be more uh, attuned to Jewish interests and not be entirely a, a patsy of the Romans, but would be an Idumean-Jewish leader who could uh, bring the people to independence. Okay, now, the, the historians who thought that the, the Pharisees readily accepted Herod's rule will point to the absence of a heroic exploit, like we said before. But it doesn't prove anything because the Pharisees were realists in, in assessing the political landscape. Unlike the Sicarii and the Zealots of the later years who would uh, break out in revolt even though there was no chance of success, the, the, the Pharisees of the year uh, 10 or 20 or 30 before the Common Era were not Meshuggah. They were reasonable people who did not want to take a chance that had slim to no chance of working out. Now, what, what were the good things that Herod actually did? Let's give him a down the cuffs close for the last few minutes. Uh, number one, there was a horrible famine in the year 25, and people were, were, were dying. And this could have been like the, the Ukraine in the 30s with Stalin. But what did Herod do? He did not allow the Judean population to die of starvation. Number one, he imported grain from Egypt. And number two, he reduced the, the rate of taxation by a third. You could say, why not just cancel taxes entirely? All right, a third is still a pretty big discount. You know, if the IRS cut it by a third, we'd, we'd do very well these days. So he did not allow the population to, be, to dwindle uh, on account of uh, mass starvation and hunger. But again, didn't he have to answer to Rome? So he had to answer to Rome, and Rome is not interested in, in, in denuding the, the countryside of its populace. They want the, the country to produce as much as possible and to pay taxes. And so if everybody's dead, you have a, 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 a korcha, a bare spot, a, a, you know, a bald patch, and that they, that they didn't want that. He rebuilds the temple in the year 20. It takes 18 months to build the temple. Now, when I say it took 18 months to build the temple, that doesn't mean the whole Temple Mount complex. That just means the building of the Ulam, the Kodesh, and the Kodesh Kadashim, the tall structure that you see in the, the, the Holy Land Hotel uh, model of the, of the old city. Okay, But the larger complex took many, many decades. Well after Herod was dead, they were still working on it. You could argue that the process never really even stopped. That from the year 20 BCE until roughly 66 uh, Common Era, when the war breaks out, there was ongoing construction on the Temple Mount, uh, Shiputzim, you know, improvements here and there. But the main bulk was done while Herod was alive. What did he do to keep the religious Jews happy? So he made a, a, a decree that only the Kohanim are allowed to be the, uh, the, the workers, the artisans 
within the holy precincts. So in the section of the Azara, where you have to be Tahor, you can't be Tameh, Lanefesh, or even Tameh in any capacity, you have to be pure, only the Kohanim could go. So the artisans and the, uh, the smiths, all right, um, they were all Kohanim, a thousand such workers. Regular Jews could do the, the outer uh, regions of the Temple Mount. Okay. Um, late in his rule, Herod became crazy. He was always a little crazy, but especially in the last years of his life. And he had several of his sons executed, including the two sons he had with Mariamne, the Hasmonean princess, which means that there wasn't going to be uh, uh, a Maccabean successor to Herod. But it doesn't mean there never was a quasi-Maccabean successor down the road, because he did have daughters. And um, he also had grandchildren. So the, the, the grandson, the son of the son of Herod, was Agrippa I. Agrippa's father, Aristobulus IV, was executed in the year 7, three years before Herod died. Why was he executed? Sedition, supposedly. Now, this is not a, a, a pleasant thing for the Romans to deal with. You know, Augustus doesn't want to see his erratic vassal king in Judea executing prince, princes and princesses. and uh, you know, It just doesn't look right. So, on several occasions, uh, elite Roman intervention saved the lives, or spared temporarily the lives, of Herod's family members. He would ha- because he would have to take into account the, the, the official position in Rome of his executing family members. But eventually, Augustus gave permission to go ahead with a trial, a sort of a phony mock trial of, of his two sons, his two sons from Mariamne, and they died. But the grandchildren, Herod loved them. So he killed their father, but he loved them. And that, and that became Agrippa, who would go to Rome and, and, and live there as a child, and then come back and become the king. Um, okay, what else did Herod do uh, of consequence? Well, he, in some ways, respected Jewish law, respected Jewish law, in that the, the, the coins circulated in the predominantly Jewish regions of the country did not have human faces on them, did not have human figures. Avodah Zarah is a very important thing in Judaism. You're not allowed to do it. Okay, simple as that. No Avodah Zarah. What is Avodah Zarah? What is a graven image? What's a violation of the second commandment? Well, debated over the years. But in antiquity, they were very strict about no, no human images. And so the standard coins of antiquity had the faces of the monarchs. Well, that's bad. Okay, so in the Jewish regions, you'd have animals and or plant life on, uh, emblazoned on the coin. That was out of uh, a healthy dose of respect for the religious sensitivities of the Jews in the, the core Jewish regions. But, even though he may have had res- some respect for uh, the Jewish faith in the core of Judea, he did not have respect for the Jewish faith in the, re- in the regions where the Jews were in the minority. And so, in the coastal regions, he builds temples to Avodah 
for the, for the Phoenicians and for the Macedonians to worship their gods. Is a Jewish king allowed to, to make, uh, or is, is a Jew, forget, forget king, is a Jew allowed to give a donation to a, a, a house of worship which, we, which, which Judaism regards as idolatrous? No, even if not a single Jew will ever walk into that building, it's Avodah Zarah for Goyim only. Still, I as a Jew am not allowed to contribute to that cause. Okay. It wasn't Pikuach Nefesh. It was Pikuach Herod. Okay. So he he is sponsoring religiously unacceptable activities in the far-flung regions of the land. And he was one of the main benefactors of the Olympic Games. When the Olympics were going to go bankrupt in the year 16 before the Common Era, he was the major fundraiser and, and, and personally funded uh, the, the, those, that Olympiad. Where what happens? It's not just that they had the high jump and the pole vault. They worshipped the gods of Mount Olympus, Zeus and the, and, the, and the Greek pantheon. So from a religious point of view, from a Jewish point of view, you, they were grateful that, for the most part, the influence of Avodah Zarah was kept out of uh, Yerushalayim and the Makoma Mikdash and the, the Judean region, but it's a big disappointment that a man who's nominally Jewish is, is, is sponsoring Avodah Zarah. I mean, you shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. So that was a, another reason, another knock on Herod. Okay. Uh, the last... It's a joke, except that they took Avodah Zarah very seriously back then. All right? in, in, in a pagan world, in a polytheistic world, Jews really were offended by it. Okay, so the, uh, the last Weren't point... Weren't they offended by the Jews? Huh? Weren't they offended by the Jews also? Some, yes. Yeah, some, some Gentiles were offended by the Jews. They thought that the, that the Jews were atheists. But that caught on. The Jewish point there caught on. That's where Christianity was able to feed on that. Because there was the Demi Jews all around the Roman Yeah, Empire. the God fearers, the God fearers. People who abandoned paganism by the millions. Yeah. And then Roman the, people did adopt the, the being Jewish also. Sure, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah the well, there were those too, but there were those who didn't go all the way for various reasons. Circumcision, sh- yeah, yeah, that sure. Okay, so we'll stop here. T- next week, we're going to discuss how did Herod die? Was it some kind of venereal disease? Was it a suicide? Uh, various theories, and what happens after he's dead. When a, when a major tyrant dies, there's a chance, a hope, for freedom. You know, when Fidel Castro is dead, they're going to want to have freedom in Cuba. So Herod is dead. What happens next? Three sons. So he has sons. They're incompetent. Is that going to result in the restoration of Jewish rule? Direct Roman rule? What happens next? See you next week.